Uh, this week's passage, as Don said earlier, is about government and taxes. Uh, I don't know if there's ever really uh, a good time where a preacher says, yay, I get to talk about government and taxes. But uh, I don't know, this week especially, with all that has been happening in our country over the yeah. last several weeks and what uh, was revealed on Friday, it, it seems like an especially bad time to talk about government and taxes. Um, but my friend, uh, David Tedla, back there, uh, taught me a lesson one time where he taught me that it's important for me to say things about things. Because, you know, I would typically, just who I am, I would typically like to avoid most political or social things from the pulpit. But I think it's important for me to say something today. But first, before we get started, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are a good and loving God, that you have uh, created this world for us to live in. Father, we ask that you would be with us in your word, that it would speak to us and tell us the truth of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Now this is an old story uh, that probably most of you are aware of, but I am terrified of the ocean. Um, I like looking at it from afar. I do not like being up close to it, especially in it too deep. Now, I think the ocean is beautiful. I, I think the things in the ocean are beautiful. And I'm glad they're in the ocean and not on land. <laughs> there are a few things in the ocean that can eat me or at the very least chew on me for a little bit. And that makes me feel uncomfortable. I mean, maybe you're comfortable with that. I am not. It makes me so uncomfortable that I can't handle it if my feet can't touch the bottom. So once my feet can't touch the bottom, friends, who knows what's underneath me? And I certainly can't see it. And there is nothing scarier t uh, to me than seeing someone swimming in open water on a TV show or movie and, and watching them suddenly, you know what I'm talking about, where they're like swimming in open water and all of a sudden, poof, right, they get pulled down. That's horrifying, horrifying to me. But there's another thing that scares me about the ocean besides all the stuff that can eat you. Um, the ocean is really big and really powerful. And I've had the experience of the ocean showing me just how insignificant I am in comparison. One moment I was swimming in the ocean, the next I was being thrown every which way. And I distinctly remember being sort of flat in the water and being caught between the water that was going out and the water that was coming in. And thinking to myself, I don't know how to get out of here. And I'm not sure if I can. And even though all this happened in just a few seconds, realizing how powerful the ocean is and how it can pull me one way or the other. It did finally slam me down on the surf and let me go. And I came to the surface choking on salt water, gasping for air, and ready to sit out the next couple plays, you know? <clears throat> I have had enough conversations with you and with other friends and many others to know that this is a little bit of the way we feel about the world today. The world seems big and chaotic 
and out of control, from COVID to inflation to the public fights over guns to school shootings to abortion and other social issues, the world has often felt out of control to me. And as, as Megan expressed in a conversation this, or as she expressed up here this morning, you open your phone and there is a new thing to make you feel like you're being pushed one way or the other. Roe versus Wade being overturned is a good example of this. And there are many inside and outside of the church who are celebrating the nationwide end of abortion protection and celebrating the lives that they believe will be saved through that. But there are many others inside and outside of the church who are fearful, confused, frustrated, and angry about this ruling. And we need to recognize that both of these points of view exist outside of our churches, within the church, within our church. They are all represented. We need to not villainize either point of view, friends. We need not to go on a quest to prove our point. We need not engage in the overly simplistic arguments that are out there. And they're out there. Well, don't you care about babies? Well, don't you care about women? Those are stupid questions. They are intended to do nothing more than prove one person's ethical superiority over another. Both of those arguments can lead ultimately to nowhere. So I want to challenge you this morning to rise up to Paul's challenge in Romans chapter 12. That we need to love one another inside the church as we should. It is the least expectation that God has for us. And that we need to love those outside of the church in a way that makes no sense at all. Loving those who do not expect to be loved by us. Maybe even particularly, sadly enough, because we are Christians. We have a real-life opportunity to practice what Paul has taught us. And so something else I learned from another friend, Sam, this week, who went on to social media and recognized that people are all over the place, but instead of engaging in some sort of argument, suggested here are ways you can support people. Support uh, women who don't have these choices anymore, support new mothers, support families, do these things. Because you see, Sam looked at it and said, well, what can we do to love people within this new reality? Air high five, Sam. My concern, and it's been my concern for a really long time, and I know I brought this up to you, uh, several times, but my, my concern is that those outside of the church will know all about what God wants them to do and why he doesn't like what they're doing, but they won't know much about how God loves them. And that is the danger in these kinds of moments. That is the danger. Labeling one side of an issue as God's side and villainize anyone who disagrees with that. And 
A realistic question that we have to ask ourselves, although it might not apply to us in the same way it applies uh, to people in other parts of the country or other churches, what happens when the church stops being a place of refuge for those who are hurting and instead becomes a place that pokes you right where it hurts? What are we to do with all of this? I mean, seriously, it's a lot. Well, I have good news for you. Paul wrote about government and taxes. And oddly enough, it's going to answer all of the questions we have. It really will. So let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 13. We're going to start in verses 1 and 2. And here is the first point that Paul wants to make to us in the, the, this chapter of Romans. No matter who sits on the earthly seat of power, God is in charge. Let me say that again. No matter who sits on the earthly seat of power, God is in charge. So here's what he says in verses 1 and 2. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on, themselves, on themselves. Okay, that's a pretty big but definitive statement that Paul makes there. There's not a lot of wiggle room. And, and here's what he is telling us. There is no authority that is over God. Period. There's no authority that is over God. Furthermore, God has put the authorities in place whether you like that authority or not. It doesn't matter if you like them or agree with them or disagree with them. You must submit to that authority. Because here's the thing, being a Christian does not give you the opportunity to choose otherwise. Sometimes, particularly where we are now, but, but not just where we are now, we feel like we must stand up for God. And, and there are times where we need to do that, don't get me wrong. But there are times where we might force through because force something through because it is what God would want. But Paul gives us a different message here right off the bat. And the message is that God doesn't need our help to be in control. God doesn't need our help to be in control. He is already in control. And allegiance to God, saying that we are God's children does not negate responsibility to the authorities of the world. Well, I serve God, so I don't serve you. Well, let's acknowledge, first of all, that serve in those two contexts are very different. In Paul's day, all of those serving as public officials were probably non-believers. And that is to make no difference for the Christian because there is no authority, Paul says, apart from the authority that God has established. He alone, God alone, 
is the sole source of authority and it has pleased him to delegate authority to those in charge of the public well-being. He clearly states the authorities that exist have been established by God. And it's backed up in other parts of Scripture. In John chapter 19, verses 11, uh, when Pilate told Jesus that he had power to set free or to crucify, he was reminded that he would have no power at all if God had not given it to him. So it's important for us to remember that government is God's way of maintaining the public good and directing the affairs of state. And we are to follow those laws and those rules. Because here's the flip side of the coin. The one who resists the authority of the state or the government is resisting what God has ordained. It's a dangerous thing to set oneself in opposition to something that God has ordained, that God has set in place. Those who rule pose no threat to those whose lives are marked with good deeds. And it's, it's the one who does evil who fears the authorities, Paul reasons. So we asked his readers in an indirect way, as we go through this, whether they would like to be free from fear of the one in authority. And if that's true, the answer is that you just need, you need to do what's right in your secular society. You need to follow the rules. You need to honor the authorities. Now, I know there's a million questions that are probably in your head at this moment. But I want to take a brief break from that to talk about the context of in which Paul is, reading, is writing this letter. Um, the letter seems to have been written toward the close of Paul's career as an apostolic preacher, somewhere between 55 and 64 A.D., the emperor at the time, because Paul was writing to a church that was in Rome, the emperor at the time was Caesar Augustus, I'm sorry, let me back that up, there's too many names, Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus. He was the Roman emperor during this time from 54 AD to 68 AD. Now, remember some of the policies that were around this time when the Roman Empire went into other people's homes and conquered them. They would allow them to keep their own system of religion as long as they paid taxes to Caesar. But in Rome, it's a slightly different story because Rome is the seat of the emperor and the emperor is considered to be a god in and of himself. So Christianity was not accepted as a religion within Rome. Now that didn't happen until 313, so 200 almost years later, when Constantine was the emperor and he stopped the persecution of Christians and legalized Christianity. So from the time that Paul wrote this letter, for almost another 200 years, Christianity was illegal, especially in Rome, especially in Rome. Now during the first part of Nero's reign, you've probably heard his name before, if you know, you've been in any sort of Bible study or, you know, uh, what the church was like at that time. Uh, he was considered initially uh, an effective, if eccentric, leader. He actually made a lot of positive changes towards the beginning of his reign, uh, but he also considered himself an artist and wanted to go to uh, Greece and participate in art shows and do all of these different sorts of things. 
But all that changed in 64 AD when a fire destroyed half of Rome. Now, there are some who believe that Nero set the fire himself, but there's actually nothing to prove this, that he set it himself. But that fire destroyed almost half of Rome, and most of it happened in the palace that he was building. For his part, when the time for blame came, Nero accused the Christians and Jews, because there was no difference to him between Christians and Jews, of the arson and instituted the first official Roman persecution. Christians were already considered to be a strange sect that did weird occult sorts of things, such as eating the body and drinking the blood of their savior. Sounds weird with no context, doesn't it? Universal tradition, uh, Christian tradition reckons that both uh, Peter and Paul were killed by Nero at some point during this time. Now, why is it important for us to remember these things? Because it is. It's important for us to remember this in part of our discussion today. Number one, Christianity was universally born into an environment where it was not only uh, looked down upon or discouraged, it was actively rejected. And it started in Jerusalem with the Jews, and it moved out to every port that they landed in. People were against Christianity. Persecution started in Jerusalem and moved out from there. And the basic rights of these Christians were taken away because of what they believed. And it was truer nowhere else, nowhere, as much nowhere else as in Rome. And it is remarkable for us, if we can step back for a second, that the Christian church grew like it did when it was threatened everywhere. And people's lives were threatened everywhere. So, the, this is the situation that the church was born into. Now, we also need to note that in the book of Acts, there are only two clear examples of civil disobedience. Um, and it happened under a very uh, certain set of circumstances. When Peter and John were told by the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 not to preach in the name of Jesus, that was what they were told not to do, to not talk about Jesus, they replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. And when they were released from that trial, what did they do? They went out and they preached Jesus, directly defying the orders of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And their answer to this was, we need to obey God and not man. So store that away for a little bit later. The believer's ultimate allegiance is to God. Wherever the demands of secular society clearly violate this higher allegiance, then the Christian will act outside the law. So two things I want to note about this. One, again, they were specifically told not to talk about Jesus, thus they rebelled. But secondly, and this is something that we often don't consider, is that the early church knew how important it was for people outside the church to think they were good people. Because how are they going to win anyone over to Christ if they are causing chaos and rebellion everywhere they go? How are they going to bring people over to this God who is a God of peace and love if they are sowing things other than peace and love? 
if they are sowing dissent and anger. So they knew how important this was. And you see this reflected in what we read last week, in, in, or two weeks ago, I should say, in chapter 12, and we see it in chapter 13. Paul makes a very clear argument for how Christians should conduct themselves. Chapter 12 tells us that Christians are to love others, even, and maybe especially, those who will stand against them, those who persecute them, those who treat them poorly. We are to love those people who are doing those things to us. And chapter 13 tells us to submit to authority. You ready? Even pagan authority. Even idol worshiping. God claiming to be God authority. We are to submit to that. Why? Why? Because God is in control. He puts things in place. And so, because you trust God, because you trust God, you will honor the rulers. You won't worship them. You don't have to. You won't stop preaching Jesus. You don't have to. But you will honor those who are put in charge because God is in control. So no matter who the authorities are, it is right for you to submit to them. This is a hard message, isn't it? Let's pick it up in verse 3. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of the possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience, i.e., this is what we are supposed to do, so we will do it. So he's trying to get his readers here to use a little bit of common sense because if they were to take to the streets, they literally would not survive the experience. And Christian, the Christian church would end in Rome. So here's what he says. Okay, these are some, some easy life lessons from Romans chapter 13. If you don't break the law, you have nothing to fear of the rulers. That's pretty logical, right? If you do break the law, that is on you. Because God has given these people authority for a reason. To disobey the laws of the land, except where they contravene the express will of God, is to violate the purpose of God himself. Obedience to civil law is necessary, not only for fear of punishment, but also for the sake of consciousness. So he's, he's asking them to use their brains here. If you don't break the law, you don't have to worry about being persecuted for breaking the law. Because guess what? You didn't break the law. Fair enough, right? But you also are, are to recognize at the same time that God is in control. So it's time for us to have an important distinction alert, okay? Right here, important distinction for us. 
Does Paul tell them that they run the risk of becoming pagans by submitting to the government? Does Paul tell them that? No. So, submitting to a pagan government does not make them pagan. Okay? Does Paul tell them that they should work hard to be elected so that they could represent Christianity? No. He doesn't say that. And there's a reason why he doesn't say that. At this point in time, Christianity existed completely apart from worldly authority. It had no power within the world. And there was no expectation that God's power and authority through the church would take over worldly authority. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around in the world we live in today, but the question of what Christians should do in positions of earthly power is not a question that would have even been asked or considered at this time. Because in no way, understand, in no way could Paul conceive of a Christian as he understood it being wrapped up in the halls of earthly power. It was, it was the opposite earthly power of what he has told Christians to do and to be and how to act and where they should represent themselves in society. And we have to remember that God already tried a theocracy, a nation run by God and his rules. Did it work? No, it didn't work. Even though God was the head and there was no other ruler besides him, it fell apart quickly. And then finally his people came to him and said, God, can we have a king just like everybody else? And how did that turn out? Not super great. Not super great for God's people. Virtually every time one of God's children throughout the Bible got a taste of earthly power, they were corrupted by it. It is a common theme throughout the Old Testament. So when Paul wrote these words, he didn't have any concept of Christianity taking over the state. The two, again, Christianity and worldly power, did not exist within the same sphere. And you can't just mash those hands together to make it work. Why? Because one is the kingdom of God, and the other is the kingdom of the world. And you need to accept something about this argument. The kingdom of the world will never be like the kingdom of God. Never. So this becomes important if we want to, we're, we're not going to go all the way down this rabbit hole, but I at least want to acknowledge it very briefly. This becomes important when we ask the question like, if all of this is true and we are submit to leaders, then what do we do with dictators and the like? What are we to think of Hitler and Putin? And does that mean that God supports them and that we support them? And is that what that means? And I would say the answer is unequivocally no. God does not expect you to support someone whose existence is centered on earthly power. 
He expects you to live a life of love, grace, and peace amongst those who would be your enemies. He expects you to submit where it does not violate what God has told you to do. And in the world that Paul lives in, they have a dictator who does not follow the Christian ethic. And what does Paul tell them? As long as you're not violating what God has told you to do, then honor the authorities. So, in order to do that, we need to give what is due. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. The most simple point here is that you are to give what is due, even if God is your authority. It is not difficult to imagine, because we've seen it, some believers thinking they don't need to pay taxes because they answer to God and not Caesar. But, ta- but Paul tells them that is not at all true. And his, again, basic argument is this. You live in a world, and that world functions around you. And you benefit from how the world functions around you. So pay what is owed. And stop trying to make this a discussion about who you are serving. And then he makes the further argument that we are to pay because those who levy taxes are servants of God. He says they devote their time and energies to governing. They are God's servants in the sense that it is God who has granted them the authority with which they secure and maintain civil order. So believers are under obligation to those in authority. They're to pay taxes, uh, respect, give honor, where all of those things are due. So ultimately, here's something I want you to know that applies to us today. It does not matter if you are conservative or liberal. It does not matter how you felt about Trump or how you feel about Biden. None of those things are important because God puts leaders in place. And besides that, even if we don't like what is happening, praise God that he is in control. And when humans get into places of power, there is always going to be chaos. Paul is not saying that every human ruler is a good ruler. Or that every human ruler makes the right decisions. He doesn't say that. Because, again, in Rome, that's not happening. But he says that we are to honor those who are in charge. Because we are not living for everything on this world to be correct. To be godly, to be right. Because, again, this world will never look like the kingdom of God. It will never look that way. And Paul's point is that we need to remember all of these things as we live in a secular world which does not hold the same values that we do. And we need to stop expecting that they will catch on and uphold our same values. If God is not their God, then they won't. Period. Thereby, we do not live our lives as those who are seeking earthly power. We live a life that reflects the love that God has for his children. In conclusion, 
Paul Actemeyer in his commentary on Romans said this, to confront Romans is to confront one's faith at its source, to have it judged and healed, to have it called into question and renewed, to have it shattered and restored in stronger and more vital form. In other words, Romans is an uncomfortable book, filled with uncomfortable statements. How does then the message of Romans confront us now? Well, there's a great struggle right now over earthly power, over who is going to be in charge and whose values are going to be instilled in our nation. And it's hard for us to remember, it's hard for me to remember, during these times where the arguments are so plentiful and passionate, that God is still in control. Even though there are so many who are grasping for power. Romans challenges us to rise above the struggle for earthly power and to replace that struggle by radically loving those who are different than us. Within the kingdom of God, you see, there are not Republicans and Democrats. There is not conservative and liberal. There is not anti-abortion, pro-abortion. I mean, we carry those things around with us, I know. I'm not, don't get me wrong, like those things exist. But there is an overwhelming power, should be an overwhelming power to the kingdom of God. And that is God himself. Who is, in fact, bigger than every social issue we could dream of. And, you know, we'll keep fighting over social issues here. And there are things that we're going to need to stand up for that are important to us as individuals. But along the way, we cannot forget that we represent the kingdom of God, that it is what tells us what our value is and what our ethic is and how we treat other people. I don't think that Jesus has called us to change the world through legislation. As if, if we make all the rules reflect God, then all of a sudden people will become godly Christian people. I think in part, that's an attempt for us to control the world around us and to shape it into what we think it should be. And let me just tell you, that effort to try to shape the world into the kingdom of God is kind of like trying to control the ocean. While you are in between what's going in and what's going out, wondering what your next breath, when your next breath will be. It is in this moment that I then need to remember that no matter what is happening, God is in control and that this world is not supposed to look like him and it never will. The kingdom of God lives by an entirely different set of values where the last are first, where people love their enemies, 
and where we boldly declare, I don't have to change this world to be my home because I have a home somewhere else that God has prepared for me. God has called us to change the world through the way that we love others. God has called us to change the world through the way that we love others, especially those who are different than us. And if we live this way, we will live differently than those who are a part of the world. Because guess what Paul says coming out of this discussion about supporting government and paying your taxes and honoring people, these people that you don't like and you don't respect their values. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. Listen to what he says. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Well, what if they do this? What if they said that? What if they voted for so-and-so? What if they don't care about babies? What if they don't care about women? Paul, in a way that I had never noticed before, says to us, don't get fixated on what people are or are not doing. Guess, guess, guess who it's your job to worry about? Yourself. And if you're worried, well, what about, you know, adultery in the world? And what about murder? And what about people stealing? And what about coveting and all that stuff? Well, the question Paul asks us is, are you going to resist those things? Well, yeah. Okay. Then guess what else you need to do besides resisting those things? Because those things are not really the whole of the law. You want to uphold the law, then you love other people. Period. Those you disagree with, you love them. You do not fight them. Those who stand opposed to you, you love them. Those who would do harm to you, you love them. Because ultimately, this is what following God and being in his kingdom is about. It's what it's about. Not doing the right things, but loving all things. All people. No matter where they come from. No matter where their values are different than yours. If we want to fulfill the law of the kingdom of God, we must, church, we must love others. And if we do anything else that changes the world... But we do not love. We are a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. We are simply something that makes noise. I don't want to just make noise. I want people who come in contact with me, who come in contact with us, to say, man, that's a weird group of people. 
but they sure treated me well. They sure loved me, even though I was different from them. You know what the best, one of the best things to happen could be? That people would be comfortable walking through these doors, even though they're so different than us. Even though they don't believe in God. Even though they think the church is corrupted and evil and wrong. That they would be able to walk through these doors and they would meet not the kingdom of earth, but the kingdom of heaven. Amen? That is our job. To represent the kingdom of heaven. To honor those who are in power whether we agree with them or not. To recognize that God is in control of the chaos. And to love others in a way that makes no sense to them. But that will show them that God also loves them in a way that makes no sense. That he sent his own son here to die for sinners. That they might have life with him.